Jesus lives. And so today we're here to celebrate that life, that victorious life, the life of one who gave us life through his death, burial, and resurrection. Bless the proclamation of your word to your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I am so delighted to see each one of you this morning, and I thank God so very much for Pastor Harris and Pastor Joe and Pastor Stevens and Trudale in their um, absence and to our deacons. And I was just sitting there reflecting and just thinking and being in ministry almost 38 years, I've never seen anything like this before in my life. I've never experienced this. And it's, it's just wonderful to have the kind of deacon leadership we have and to have the associate pastors that we have working together, loving God, loving each other, and to have the congregation we have. It's wonderful. We ought to give God a hand clap of praise this morning. He's an awesome God. Amen. I want to read just a couple of verses that Pastor Harris so eloquently read already this morning from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 26. Just, just two of those verses, 26 and 27. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. Verse 28, For this is my body of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remissions of sin. I want to preach today from this subject, two simple words, the table. The table. The celebration of the Lord's Supper, or communion as we call it, is a very special time in the life of, of the ch a church family. It is a time for us to pause as a church family and to, um, to, to just reflect upon, to think about, to meditate upon the life, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a time for us to focus, first of all, individually on the cross uh, as the place where Jesus paid our sin debt. That's what we ought to think about this morning. We ought, to, we ought to just focus on the cross, the place where Jesus suffered and bled and died for us individually. But we also should focus on, on the cross as a place where Jesus suffered and, and bled and died for us as a church family. More specifically, as the Good Hope Missionary Baptist Church family. The communion table complete with the bread and the and the cup points our hearts and our minds to Jesus who saves us completely we ought to think about that Jesus saves us totally he saves us holistically he saves us completely in other words at Calvary the job was done we see a lot of incompleteness in our world, don't we? We drive by houses and people and buildings, and people start building, but they walked away. And some people start jobs, and they walk away. Some people start projects, and they walk away, and they're never completed. But what Jesus did on Calvary was a complete job. It was a job. Well done. Nothing can be added. Nothing can be taken away from what Jesus has already done. No law, no rules, no regulation, no ideas, no opinions, no speculations can take away from what Jesus Christ has done for us on Calvary. 
John, the writer of the gospel, which bears his name, chapter 19, verses 28 through 30, states the matter like, like this, states the completeness, complete matter like this. Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine and vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, and they put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Now, notice, when he had received the drink, Notice what he said. Jesus said, it is finished. In other words, Jesus makes the undeniable, unquestionable, irrefutable, and incontestable announcement that his sacrificial death on Calvary's cross paid the sin debt for humanity in full. It was a done deal. And sometimes I talk to people and I hear people talk about losing their relationship with Jesus Christ and losing their salvation and, and, and losing what God had, has done for them through Jesus Christ on Calvary. And the only thing I can say based on scripture is that the only way you can put your sin back on you or the sin that Jesus has taken off of you the only way you can lose that what Jesus, which Jesus died on Calvary cross to give you is to undo Calvary. And nobody can do that. Nobody can undo what Jesus has already done for you. Now, with that in mind, let's turn our attention to the table. In doing so, we find the disciples carrying out the instructions of Jesus. They go into the city of Jerusalem. They find a certain man, and they say to this man, the teacher says, in reference to Jesus, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. Matthew 26, 18. When evening came, Jesus was sitting at the table with his disciples. He identified Judas as the betrayer. Then while they were eating, Jesus took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he said, giving it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. And then verse 26, then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, drink from it. All of you, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, verse 27 and 28. Now from these several verses that Pastor Harris read and I reiterated, I want to address just three lessons from the table, three lessons from the communion table. Lesson one, the table is declaration of God's amazing grace. The table is a declaration of God's amazing grace. Let me say that again. I want you to get this down. I want you to get this in your heart, your mind, your notes. The table is a declaration of God's amazing grace. I heard a fictitious, a fictional story, fictitious story, and I thought it was quite humorous and it had a lot of meaning to it, so I want to share it with you today about a baseball game between God's team and the devil's team. The score was zero to zero in the bottom of the ninth ending. God's team was up to bat. And the first batter God called was Love. Love stepped up to the bat, and on the first pit, 
wouldn't you know it, the old devil threw a curveball. Love swung the bat and hit a line drive straight past the third baseman. As Love stood on first base, a young man by the name of Freddie asked God, God, why did you call on Love to bat first? To which God replied to Freddie, Love never fails. Next, God called on faith, and the devil threw a faith through faith a fastball. Faith swung the bat, hitting the first, hitting the ball over the head of the center fielder. Love began ran to second, and first, and faith stood on first base. Again, Freddie asked God, "God, why did you call on faith?" God said, "I called on faith." Because faith, now faith, is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. The third batter, called by God, was patience. And the devil threw the first pitch, but wouldn't you know it, patience just stood still and he let the pitch go by. The devil threw a second pitch, and again, patience stood still and just let the pitch go by. The devil threw the third pitch, and again, patience just stood there and watched the pitch go by. No anxiety, no fear, no hurriedness, no intrepidation. And then, again, the devil threw a pitch to patience. And he just stood there and watched the ball go by, and the umpire yelled, Ball four. Patience walked to first base, taking his time, of course. And Freddie asked God, why did you call on patience? God replied, I called on patience because those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Now the bases are loaded. The old devil is nervous and the crowd is standing upon their feet. Then God calls Grace. Grace walks up to the batter's box and took his stand. The old devil wound up, ran back, and, 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 and threw forth the hardest pitch of the game. Grace hit a grand slam, knocking the ball out of the park and bringing everyone home. Freddie was so excited, jumped up, asked God, why did you use Grace? God said, Fred, I use grace because my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. Now, although the story is fictional, it illustrates a deep and abiding principle of, of truth which is expressed in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and that." This not from yourselves, it is a gift from God, not by works, lest no one can boast. The first lesson from the table serves to remind us that any measure of success that you and I accomplish, all the way from first base to home, is all about God's amazing grace. I love the down-to-earth testimony of Dottie Rambo 
who wrote these words, Amazing grace shall always be my song of praise, for it was grace that bought my liberty. I do not know just why he came to love me, so he looked beyond my faults and saw my needs. That's grace. That's why we're here today, because God looked beyond our faults, and he saw every one of our needs. I shall forever lift my eyes to Calvary, she said, to view the cross where Jesus died for me. How marvelous that that, that grace that caught my fallen soul, he looked beyond my faults. And he saw my knees. Grace, grace, God's amazing grace. Plainly stated, God's grace has brought us safe this far. And in 2015, no matter what we face, God's grace will take us on. Lesson two, the table is a proclamation of God's astonishing mercy. When a former mayor of New York befriended a poor, dejected outcast of the city, he was harshly criticized by the prosecuting attorney who said, to him, this, this loving, godly mayor uh, said to him, this man is a tramp. He's a derelict. He's been in and out of trouble, in and out of jail. He's a menace to society. He's a social misfit. He is only getting what he deserves. Upon hearing this, the judge interrupted the harsh counselor by asking with a smile, son, did you ever hear of the mother who visited Napoleon on behalf of her son? Napoleon the emperor told her the young man had committed the same offense twice and justice demanded the death penalty. But sir, the mother replied to, to, to him, I did not come to you today in order to appeal for justice because I know what justice demands. I did not come today to appeal to you on behalf of my son for justice. I came today to ask you, sir, for mercy. He doesn't deserve it, Napoleon shouted. No, he doesn't, his mother admitted with tears in her eyes, but it would not be mercy if he did. You're right, said Napoleon. I'll grant your request, and I'll show your son mercy. You see, the communion table reminds us that grace is God giving us what we don't deserve, and mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. Notice verse 26 of the text. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Verse 27. Then he took the cup, gave them thanks, and offered it to him, them saying, Drink from it, all of you. Verse 28. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Do you see the mercy application in the text? The mercy application is this. Jesus faced a hateful, a horrible, and hideous death on Calvary's cross. 
His body was bruised. His body was battered. His body was beaten. Calvary was not a pretty picture. Isaiah 52, 14b gives us a photographic snapshot by writing, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. That meant he shed his blood to wash away our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds, his stripes, we are healed. So every time we come to the table, we ought to hear loudly and clearly God's astonishing proclamation of mercy, which is this, justice demanded that it should have been me and it should have been you. Never mind the titles we wear. Never mind the positions we hold. Never mind the gift we display. Never mind the abilities we have. Never mind the acts of righteousness we do. Never mind the magnitude of our service or the latitude of our sacrifice and the attitude concerning our sacredness. Never mind all of that. Never mind how much we come to church. and Never mind how much we pay our tithes. And never mind how much we are good or try to be good if it were not for God's mercy, all of us would be doomed. Never mind the halos we wear. Never mind the righteousness we ascribe to ourselves and the righteousness other people ascribe to us. Never mind all of that. If it were not for God's mercy, all of us would be doomed. Lost in our trespasses and lost in our sins with no hope of redemption. One of my favorite stories about mercy is found in the gospel of Luke chapter 18 verse 9 through verses 9 through 14 where two men went to the temple to pray. I love this story. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. And Pharisees were seen as the holies of the holies. They wore their their robes with the tassels on it, reflecting their levels of holiness and the imaginary halos on their heads. And and nobody could get it right but them. And they disputed even with Jesus. We have some folk like that today that have it so right with all of the rights, the laws, the legalism, even if Jesus came, they would argue with him and tell him how wrong he was. Those were the Pharisees. That was their way. One of them went up to pray, and the other man was a tax collector. He was called a sinner. He was despised. He was looked upon as being ruthless, the lowest of the low. And the Pharisees stood up, and he and prayed about himself. This is what he said. He said, God... I thank you that I'm not like other men. You you know God who I'm talking about, those robbers, evildoers, adulterers. And God, I'm not even like this, this, this tax collector over here. In modern day translation, you know what it would, it would be like? It would be like standing up on, in church on Sunday morning and say, God, I thank you 
I'm not like the dope smokers. I'm not like the wine drinkers. I'm not like the gays, the leverages, and the transfer. I'm not like them. You know that, God. I'm, stri- I'm straight up. I-, I don't steal. I don't lie. I don't cheat. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not like all of these other wicked folks that around. You know, God, they're just, they're just wicked, wicked, wicked. I'm not like them. He, and then he goes on, he says, I fast twice a week. You know, that's in the law. I'm supposed to fast. He says, and, and I give a tenth of all that I get. God, I'm a good tither. Be like people say, God, I, I follow all the rules. I keep the Sabbath. I'm a tither. I pray before every meal. I bow my head as Pastor Harris brought out so that everybody can see. I put on a good show. Everybody, I carry a big Bible. Everybody can see. My response when you speak to me is praise the Lord. Hallelujah. God is good all the time. I got the language, God, down packed. I'm holy. And the tax collector, on the other hand, the Bible says, stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his chest. And that was a sign of humility. That, that was a sign of, God, I'm not worthy to even look up at you. I'm not, I'm not worthy to beat his chest. Say, God, I'm nothing. I, I know I'm a nobody. I got a good job, but I realize that in your sight, without you, I'm nothing. I got status in community, and, and I got rank in the community, and I, I got a title as a tax collector. But in reality, God, I understand I'm really nothing. And then he said these words. He said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that ought to be our prayer sometimes. It ought to be, God, have mercy on me, a a sinner. I tried and my best effort failed. I am a sinner. And you know what Jesus says in verse 14? He said, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, rather than the other, this Pharisee, went home, would be justified, went justified before God. But now notice what what Jesus says here. He says, for everyone who exalts himself. In other words, for everyone who puts himself up or herself up and talk about how holy and how righteous and how good they are. He said, will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, he or she who understands their position in the faith that we are nothing uh, without God, that we, we will be exalted. This table is a proclamation of God's astounding mercy. And then lastly, lesson three, the table is a publication of God's astounding love. Astonishing mercy, astounding love. When God prepared the first communion table over 2,000 years ago, he was publicizing his astounding love for humanity. John 3.16 is a classic rendition of God's love. Don't you love this? I, I circle my wagons around this. This is this is where I stand. I mean, I'm not really, you know, into arguing with people about salvation and all of the rules and the legalism and all of the isms, the schisms that people have attached to, to the salvation message. But I just land right here. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I may not be able to answer to all of the questions and I may not dispute with the greatest of philosophers and I may not be able to, to argue the point. I don't even want to argue the point. But this one thing I do know. Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him, that's you and, and that's me and that's the rich and that's the poor and that's the white and that's the black and, and that's the Hispanic, whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You may have a good background, church upbringing background. You may have been a hootlum, a thug, never went to church in your life until you came to know Jesus. Whosoever covers you, whosoever covers all of those dark times and those desert places and all of those things that we are embarrassed about, whosoever shall not. Believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That, that's his classic rendition of God's love. But then John 15 and 13 is a consoling admission of God's love. Greater love has no man than this. That a man lay down his life for his friend. John 14, 1 and 2 is a calm condition of God's love. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, in my father's house of many mansions, many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come back to take you to be with me that where I am, you may be also. That's God's calm, condition, love. And when we take a serious look at the communion table, Focusing our undivided attention upon the bread and the cup when we block other things out of our minds. When we block the drama of the week, the trauma of the week out of our minds. And to focus our undivided attention upon the table, the bread and cup. We can't help but be gripped by the ever-present reality of God's astounding love for us. Contemporary songwriter. And vocalist Chris Tomlin expresses the essence of God's astounding love at the table with these words and with these words I'll close. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted not on my own merit, not because of my goodness. I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, should die for me? Amazing love. I know it's true. It's my joy to honor you. Is it anybody's joy here this morning to honor God in all we do? It's my joy to honor you in all I do. It's my joy to honor you through my preaching and through my teaching. It's my joy to honor you through my love for
for my fellow human beings. It's my joy to honor you in the way that I talk, walk, and present myself. It's my joy to honor you in how I love people, even those who do me harm. It's my joy. Anybody's joy here to honor people. Honor God through blessing his people. It's my joy to honor you in all I do to honor you. I encourage you to come to this table. But bear in mind that you're here because of God's Amazing grace, God's astonishing mercy, and God's astounding love.